Well, good morning to you. Good morning. It's been a busy week around here at Osterville. We um, had the privilege and the honor of participating in one of the Hyannis Fire Department's uh, funeral services for our fallen officer, uh, Lieutenant Rick Knowlton, who was a member here at Osterville Baptist Church. And I got to say, uh, love our service people in this church, love what you guys and girls do, uh, thankful for you. And um, it was just a supreme honor and privilege to be able to participate in that and see how the fire department and police departments honor one another uh, when one of their own is fallen. So uh, that was just a special time. And kudos to Chemo Baker. Oh boy, he really went the extra mile this week for them. And uh, I just, I think that God's built some relationships there. So thankful for that. And thank you, Chemo, for your hard work. All right, let's open up our Bibles. Genesis chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's a blue Bible found in the chair in front of you. And you can turn there with us. While you're turning there, listen to these words. Having heard all this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. Now those stirring words were spoken by William Wilberforce. It was at the end of his first speech to the Parliament in England. He was the great British abolitionist who was instrumental in leading the end of the slave trade in England in the 18th century. You might be familiar with the movie Amazing Grace that came out in 2007 and it depicts his life. I remember initially in the movie Wilberforce struggling between his calling or for his calling in life. He had come to know Jesus Christ in his early 20s. And so this dilemma grew in his mind, a desire to serve the Lord, but also a desire to be an, a political activist, to advance this cause that was so near and dear to his heart. As he was struggling with this dilemma, one activist and humanitarian, Hannah Moore, said this, we humbly suggest that you can do both. And do both he did. You see those words, having heard all of this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know, were both prophetic and pace-setting for his life. How do you change a nation where, as William Pitt suggested, the slave trade has 300 members of parliament in its pocket, it will be you against them. How do you move against such overwhelming social complicity? One publicist stated the matter plainly. The impossibility of doing without slaves in the West Indies will always be uh, prevalent, uh, will always prevent this traffic from being dropped. Well, Wilberforce's solution was to expose people to the horrors of the slave trade. There's this poignant scene early in the movie where he stages a setup for some of the well-to-do members of society. They are taking a casual sailing excursion in the bay. And the boat is stopped right next to the Madagascar. And Wilberforce walks out on the deck of the Madagascar and he begins with these words, 200 slaves were delivered to the West Indies on this boat. Only it left with 600 the lords and ladies began to smell the dreadful smell of death that was coming off of the boat, and so they took their handkerchiefs and put them over their noses. Wilberforce, using that momentum, said, 
take those handkerchiefs down, that smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it in deeply. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. Remember that God made men equal. Now what if Wilberforce would have kept this conversation just purely theoretical? What if he would have just simply argued from logic, but he didn't offend the smell of people? Well, I submit to you that they would have remained happily ignorant. Sometimes the only way to move people is to show them the hideousness. Let them see the living conditions. Let them smell the stale blood and the excrement that people have walked upon and slept upon and died upon. Let them get an eyeful. Let them get an earful. Let them get a noseful. Sometimes that's the only way to get the message across. As we open our Bibles to consider Genesis 19, I know what we're thinking. Why would God have a story like this in his Bible? I don't want to know those things. I I don't want to think about those things. But God's saying to us this morning, put the handkerchief down. That smell is the smell of human depravity if left untouched. That smell is where human society can go without God's gracious intervention. Remember that smell. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Before we read, it is imperative that we remember Abraham's question to God in Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And God promised in that conversation that he would go down, that he would see the outcry with his own eyes, that he would see that every detail and provision of justice was done. And so, We go down with God to Sodom to see what God saw. Let's read the first three verses. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, as I read this story, I feel like you can almost cut the tension with a knife. Lot's sitting at the gate, and you may not be familiar with this, but when a person is sitting at the gate in a city during this day and age, it means that they are a major player of the city a person of prominence, someone who is well-networked, someone who has all the right resources, someone who has clout. So these two men, these two angels, walk into the town, and Lot offers them up hospitality. He welcomes them into his home. He promises to feed them. That's a very crucial thing to offer hospitality during this day and age. You see, people would travel hundreds if not thousands of miles through terrain and weather that was not hospitable to life. In addition to that, there would be wild animals and marauders. So to not offer someone hospitality was not just a simple social slight, but it was actually saying, I don't necessarily care if you live or you die. So Lot offers them his home. He's gracious. 
when the angels come back to Lot and say, no, we'll stay in the town square. Now the scene gets a little more ominous. Verse 3, he pressed them strongly. There's this air of foreboding in verses 4 and 6. Explain why. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Friends, this is nothing short of a publicly shaming, filthy act to bring these men out, to humiliate them, to rape them publicly, to dehumanize them in every way that you can think of. Remember, my friends, this is the Madagascar. This is where the handkerchief needs to be put down. We need to remember that smell because Sodom was not only the kind of place that wasn't kind to its guests, Sodom was the kind of place where guests were sexually assaulted and and brutalized simply for staying overnight in the town. It was the kind of town where everyone participates. Notice verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people down to the last man surround the house. How many people have they done this to? And if they're willing to surround a man's house and and rip out his guests and publicly rape them, what else are they not willing to do? You see, friends, this is as bad as it gets. This is why God went down to Sodom. This is why he brought his judgment. And if we don't understand human nature and human disposition, then we might tend to soften what Sodom and Gomorrah was like. But this is what it was. This was that place. Now, it should be noted that in this point of the Bible, that there isn't necessarily a single sin uh, that we could attribute to Sodom and Gomorrah, even though the, the term Sodom has been treated almost as a synonym with the sin of homosexuality. Now, having said that, while this story is not just a, about homosexual activity, Genesis 19 does have something to say about it, and so does the rest of the Bible. So I want to spend a little time engaging in this important conversation, this dialogue. Yes, this is a digression, but one that is important for Christians to hear because of our current cultural moments. If you're here today and you're exploring church and you're coming in and saying to yourself, is this what they talk about all the time? Do they always talk about these types of things? I just want to reassure you that this is not a soapbox issue for me. In fact, I was trying to think back, have I ever even talked on this subject matter? And I don't think I have the entire time that I've been preaching here. I may have mentioned it, but beyond that, I don't think I've talked about it. And that's because I systematically make my way through the scriptures. So the Bible doesn't bring this issue up all the time. It's not like the Bible only focuses on one particular sin. So while the Bible has a consistent view on homosexuality, One author rightly observes that the Bible addresses issues like salvation, the poor, money, the kingdom of God, heaven, hell, and and a host of other issues much more than it does 
this particular issue, homosexuality. So let's talk about this a little bit. I think it's important in the church to talk about this. Let's consider a couple of common assumptions that are made about Christians with regard to this subject. Assumption number one is this, that all Christians hate gays and lesbians. One person suggested that evangelical Christians might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay hater, homophobic. Is that a fair statement? I I recently had a conversation with a police officer that brought this, uh, that seemed like a parallel to me to that statement. As we were striking up the conversation, he said something along these lines. There are times when it can be hard to remember that 99.5% of the people that we serve are good, hardworking, peaceful people. Now, why is that? Well, because he's regularly dealing with the 0.5%, isn't he? And it seems due to the frequency of how often that he is dealing with them that a lot more people are like that than really are. Westboro Baptist, right? Holding up the picket signs, attending the funerals. Oh boy, every Christian must be like this when in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. Not all Christians hate gay people. Indeed, most Christians do not hate gay people at all. It is never fair to assign responsibility to an entire group for the actions of isolated individuals. Just it is not fair for some of us to say something along the lines of, all Muslims are terrorists. Should we say things like that? Absolutely not. We shouldn't say then that all Christians hate gay and lesbians. Yet this perception is pervasive, and it's said often. In his book, A Practical Guide to Culture, Brett Kunkel, who co-authors with John Stode Street, shares an interaction he had with a Christian teenager who was bothered by the perception of the church's response to gays and lesbians. Kunkel writes, he declared, Christians have treated gay people terribly. I was curious where this impression of Christians came from, so I asked a few questions. Well, you've grown up and have been active in the church, right? He nodded. So that means you've observed Christians carefully almost every week for the last 16 years of your life. He nodded again. And in those 16 years, how many times did you personally witness a Christian treating a gay person terribly? Well, he sat back and thought for a moment. Actually, I've never seen it myself, he finally answered. Uncle continues, I mean, think about that. Here was a young person who had grown up in the church, had a very negative perception of Christians' actions towards the homosexual community, but had never personally observed such mistreatment. I've been regularly asking this question of Christians and have discovered that the vast majority have never seen another Christian treat gay people with anything but kindness. Hmm. Second assumption, to love gay and lesbian people, Christians must deny the historical Orthodox Christian understanding of the Bible. Essentially, the only way to love gay and lesbian people is to agree with the behavior. Can a Christian view homosexual behavior as sinful while maintaining a heart of love for people? Is it possible to do both at the same time? 
Now recently, some evangelical Christians have sought to write books in defense of a biblical case for same-sex relationships because they do not believe that it's possible to do both at the same time. They've created what we call, in logic, a false dilemma. Now, one writer states this. He says, armed with only six passages in the Bible, often known as the clobber passages, the traditional Christian position has been one that stands against full inclusion. Uh, but here's the deal. Why do the number of passages have anything to do with it, first off? Six or 50 or 100? You know, essentially, if the Bible has only one passage that spoke on a subject clearly and it spoke with authority, then we should recognize it as authoritative and obey it. Secondly, this is a warped view of acceptance. Think about this. Essentially, you can only accept people you agree with. Well, that type of thought process is what tends to lead towards discriminatory behavior, doesn't it? What is the Bible's stance on same-sex relationships? Well, it's a little more nuanced than even those passages, those six passages. You see, the biblical vision for marriage and sexuality does not begin with a thou shalt not, but with a God saw and it was good. The primary emphasis of the Bible is not that homosexuality or is not homosexuality and its sinfulness. No, the primary emphasis is God's purpose and design for men and women to become husband and wife in committed monogamous relationships. You see, it speaks to this or uses this platform to speak into all kinds of different subjects, doesn't it? It talks about divorce and remarriage. It talks about sex before marriage. It talks about adultery. It talks about polygamy. But it all goes back to God's original design, not to God wanting to say, thou shalt not all the time. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? You see, God's purpose for marriage and for sex and his creational design between a husband and a wife in a monogamous relationship is human flourishing. Anytime we hold to one of God's standards as a society, As individuals, you know what happens? Human flourishing. Because God has created his laws into the moral universe. And when we adhere to those laws, we are at our best. We flourish. Based on this biblical understanding of marriage and sex, then consider what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. First, homosexuality violates God's creational norms. We weren't designed to engage sexually with partners of the same sex. Paul argues this in Romans 1.26. He says, They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So we might say to ourselves, but what if I feel this way? There's all kinds of feelings that we're going to have that might cause us to do something that's contrary to God's moral nature. And so we have to check our feelings with what God's word says, what is true. No matter how much some argue that it is normal and it's healthy, just like any other heterosexual relationship, the Bible just will not be forced into that grid. 
it tells us what God intended and why he designed the world the way he did. Secondly, homosexuality violates God's moral law. That's why we call it a sin. Anything that violates God's moral law is a sin. Lying's a sin. Stealing's a sin. Murder is a sin. God first articulates his moral law on the subject of homosexuality in the book of Leviticus, but then it's later reiterated in the Bible in Paul's letters in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. Now again, why does the, the Bible bring it up in those passages? It's not because the Bible's obsessed with the subject. No, Paul's writing to Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus, and he's giving an instruction on this matter because these particular towns struggled with this topic. That's why he's writing to them. As Christians, we are called to maintain the biblical vision of marriage and sex. This means that we must practice a strong Christian sexual ethic personally. Let that one sink in. Some from the gay community have said, why do Christians fault us for our lifestyle choices when they do not observe their own standards in their own personal life? And you know, I gotta say sometimes, I gotta say, kind of right. Kind of making a point there. What's the principle for Christians here? Remove the plank from your own eye before you're gonna go remove the speck from another's eye. Just as strongly as the Bible says to a man, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, the Bible also says to Christians, you shall love your gay neighbors. Friends, when it comes to our neighbors from the gay community, we must be able to walk and chew gum. Are you able to walk and chew gum? Uh, Some of you can only chew gum. And some of you can only walk. But the Bible says you need to be able to do both. You have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Recently, a pastor shared with me a powerful story. He was visiting a family member. And uh, this family member had been a part of the lesbian lifestyle for over 30 years. She came up to this pastor, and she was obviously distraught. And she said to him, I know that you know my lifestyle choices. I haven't tried to make it public, but... I'm just really struggling right now. My church tells me that it's okay. My family members, some of them are telling me that it's okay. I have friends that are telling me that it's okay. But I have personally desired to get to know God more and I want to understand his Bible better. And so I've been reading and I don't think that the Bible is condoning my lifestyle. I know you're a pastor. I know you won't hold back. Will you please share with me how you understand the Bible. Well, this pastor had been praying for this person, been involved in this person's life for years, and tears just immediately welled up in his eyes. And he went on to lovingly and gently explain that the Bible's position on same-sex relationships does not condone how you have been living He concluded that conversation by saying, I hope you understand how much I love you. I have never sought to treat you differently because of your lifestyle choice. I only ever pray for you. And I think right now in this moment that God's working on your heart. Friends, that's walking and chewing gum at the same time. She looked him in the eye and said, I know you love me. You explained that with me with such kindness and compassion. 
I know that it came from the heart. Now I know that a topic like this for many of us is not just theoretical. It's deeply personal. In fact, to even think about the topic sometimes can be heartrending because we have friends who come out of the gay community. We have children or brothers and sisters or nieces and nephew or cousins. Some of us have been in this lifestyle. Some of us are listening to me right now and just wondering if I should just chuck all of this or hear it. I want to say to you, no matter where you're at, that I love you guys and I'm praying for you and I'm just telling you how I understand the Bible. For the remainder of this sermon, I would like to take the camera lens off of Sodom and place it on our quasi-righteous friend Lot, whom God graciously saves. Now, I struggle to call Lot righteous, and I wouldn't call him righteous if we didn't have 2 Peter chapter 2 in the Bible, which calls him righteous three times. So, maybe you've heard that expression, he called Switzerland. As many of you know, Switzerland over the years has remained neutral in many historical conflicts right there in the middle of Europe, and yet it wouldn't engage in any of the world wars. So when someone calls Switzerland, they're claiming to be neutral in the arguments. Lot tried to live the I'm calling Switzerland life. He thought to himself, I won't participate, I'll quietly disagree, but I certainly won't get involved. So how did uh, calling Switzerland work out for Lot? Well, let's ask him three questions. Question number one, Lot, how did Sodom influence you? Verses six through eight. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters and have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Oh, honestly, I mean, Lot's suggestion just brings one word to my mind. Idiot. As Lot makes this suggestion, I mean, the only thing that I can think of right now is Joe Pesci's character, Lou, from Lethal Weapon. Like, okay, 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 okay. I got a great idea, guys. It's a terrible idea. Are you kidding me? I mean, you just envision this grimy, sleazy little man who's been playing Switzerland a long time, and he's trying to appease everybody and keep it all cool, but he just comes across as an idiot. Friends, that's what happens when you love a city for all the wrong reasons. Here's a confusing thought. The Bible tells us that God loves the world. And I think then by implication that we are called to love the world. But at the same time, the Bible tells us you must not love the world. Isn't that kind of confusing? Well, let's think about Lot through that grid. Lot loved Sodom, but for all the wrong reasons. He loved the reputation. He loved what he could get from it. He loved making money. He loved the comfort and ease and the false sense of security that the city life brought to him. But did he really love Sodom? Well, in verses 15 through 22, he engages in this conversation with the angels who are coming to destroy Sodom. 
Now you would think that the great man of the gates would plead for God to spare the city that I'm trying to reach. But no. He doesn't make a peep. His request is found in verse 20. Behold, this little city is near enough to flee to, and it's just a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not only a little one? And my life will be saved? Lot's major concern is to be sent to another little city so that he can maintain a little more of his current lifestyle. Do you see that? He loved Sodom, but he didn't love Sodom. Lot was just like the city that he wouldn't pray for. D.L. Moody's illustration on worldliness describes Lot's problem well. When the boat is in the water, that's good. But when the water is in the boat, that's bad. My next question for Lot, question two. Lot, did you influence Sodom? Lot asked the men of the town to stand down. He had called Switzerland for so long, but finally he knew that he had to stake a position. There was a line in the sand, and they couldn't cross the line in the sand. So how do they respond to him? Well, let's take a look. Verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. So what do you think? Did he influence them? Did he have the clout that he thought he had? No. In fact, when you think about it, he's good enough to sit at the gate, but boy, you speak out and you become this fellow. As we read on, we'll see that he didn't even make a difference in his son-in-law's life. Look at verses 10 to 14. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else that you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place! For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. So Jesus uses two analogies in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't he? He describes how Christians can influence culture through these analogies. The first analogy that he uses is that uh, of salt, right? Salt is a preservative. It represents moral influence that comes by maintaining a pure life. If the salt loses its saltiness, what does Jesus say? It's no longer useful. It doesn't preserve culture. The other analogy that Jesus uses is that of light. Light, as you know, reveals. It shines into darkness. It brightens up the room. So Christians can also influence society by declaring what is true as we understand the Bible. But what if you hide that light? Well, then none of the revelatory work occurs. Lot called Switzerland. Lot lost his saltiness. Lot hid his light in Sodom. 
So when the time had come for him to speak out morally, the city rejected him, and his sons-in-laws laughed at him. The townspeople said, how dare you judge us? Who are you to say anything? We haven't heard anything out of you before this point. And the sons-in-law, they're laughing. Oh, come on, lots. A couple of guys come around, and they preach some judgment, and all of a sudden, you're going to get religious on us? Friends, the only way to have any sort of voice in society is to recognize that God's word is true and to remain consistent with your convictions. We'll talk about that more at the end, but for now, notice, Lot's influence, a big fat nothing burger in Sodom. Third question, Lot, What happened to your family? You see, Lot's Switzerland stance proves most tragic for his family, his wife, and his daughters. Let's think about Lot's wife. In verse 17, the angels were clear, escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. We're not exactly sure of what happened when God brought judgment into this region. Many scholars suspect that the fire and destruction came about maybe due to a major earthquake that God had initiated. So here would be heat and gas and sulfur and those tar pits, and they would all be spewing out of fissures during a violent earthquake. And when that ignites, the effect would have been comparable to an atomic bomb. All of those deep tar pits igniting and flaming all at the same time and and raining down on the city. And this could also explain why the Dead Sea is sunk and it's so low in the earth at this time. So one of the puzzling details, though, is Lot's wife, verse 26, look there. It says that Lot's wife behind him looked back and then she became a pillar of salt. Is this truly death by glance? While describing what it will be like when God's judgment comes in the last days, Jesus indicates in Luke 17 that Lot did more than, Lot's wife did more than just simply glance. Listen to this. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. Did Lot's wife decide to turn back while fleeing? John Walton suggests that Lot's wife may have said, you're a fool, Lot, and I refuse to go one step further. I'm going home. I'll see you in a day or two or whenever you come back to your senses. Whatever happened though, right? Whatever happened, Lot's wife was preserved in her state of longing for the city that had captured her heart. But what about his daughters? What about them? Verses 30 and 32 summarize this last story. Lot went on to Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, 
that we may preserve offspring from our Father. Yet again, another story that I will reserve my West Virginia analogies for. And the gross thing is, they did it. In fact, verses 37 and 38 tells us that Moab and Ammon come about due to this relationship. These are the bitter enemies of Israel. I tell you, I don't like this story. I don't like Genesis 19. I don't like all the things that I'm seeing here, the things that I'm interacting with, the things that I'm made to think about. Why is this in God's Bible? Put that handkerchief down. That smell is the smell of human depravity's effect on the home. Lot's daughter didn't come up with such a sordid plan in a moralless vacuum, did they? No. They learned to think like this while they were living in Sodom. Well, Daddy was calling Switzerland. Well, Mommy wanted to be in the city that was about to be destroyed. Chuck Swindoll sounds this warning to us parents, and I think it's important to listen to. He says, ours is a filthy culture. It's easy to look past it, to shrug your shoulders and think, ah, that's not a big deal. These kinds of things happen. I was a kid once too, and I turned out okay. Stop and think. Was your generation anywhere near today's generation? Listen to what your kids bring home from school. Pay attention to the friendships they choose. Be assertive and clear about establishing standards and then hold them accountable. Take an interest in what movies they watch and what music they like and what kind of videos that, uh, video games that they're playing. Participate with them. And don't expect the church or a Christian school to do your parenting for you. The church cannot resurrect what the home puts to death. Ministry cannot work miracles in one or two hours. You see, if we were to look at Lot's life as a a Greek play, we would call Lot's life a tragedy. What led to his downfall? Well, it certainly had something to do with his unrestrained cravings and his desires, but I think that it goes deeper yet. I think that Lot lived by consensus and not by conviction. What's the difference between the two? Living by consensus is that drifty state of being tossed around by the current mood and trend of the day. When people say things like, I I don't want to be found on the wrong side of history, I think what they're actually meaning in the moment is, I want to be found with the majority. Haven't you seen this? Have you seen how rapidly people support something when it's gone viral on social media without forethought to what is actually being said? Friends, Consensus is not a very sound way to make any kind of decision, let alone moral decisions. But conviction, conviction is different than consensus. Convictions are beliefs that come from a place that is higher and better than our own desires. This is why we need the Bible. 
This is God's revealed truth. We need to know what the Bible says because the truth is not found within myself and it's not found within the majority of us. We need to believe the Bible so that we will convince, be convinced to live by the Bible. And we also need to be praying for the courage to live out our convictions when consensus say that our convictions are wrong. That's where Lot failed. He was righteous in the sense that he didn't do everything that the people of Sodom did, but he didn't have strong enough convictions. You see, conviction is what kept William Wilberforce in the battle, firm in his resolve. Remember what his friends said. The slave trade has 300 members of parliament in its pocket. It would be just you against them. Consensus was not going to fix this problem. Only grit, determination, and conviction would solve this problem. And Wilberforce would go on to fight for the freedom of enslaved Africans for the remainder of his life. He introduced bill after bill, many of the bills being defeated over decades. 1791 defeated, 1792, 1793, 1798, 1799, 1804, 1805. And when it became apparent that Wilberforce was not giving up, then he was succumbed to personal attack. But he kept fighting. He finally saw a major victory in the year of 1807 when Parliament abolished the slave trade in the British Empire. But they would still allow slavery to persist in the empire. Now you would think that that would be enough. That's a major victory. What more could anyone expect in a lifetime? But his convictions ran deeper. He wanted to see slavery abolished. So he continues to fight for another 26 years. In the year of 1833, Wilberforce is lying on his deathbed. And I wonder if the fight didn't cost him his health. While lying in his bed just three days before he would go home to be with Jesus, Wilberforce has told the news that Parliament has passed a bill that will abolish slavery in the British Empire. See, friends, one can stand against 300 and win if one has the right convictions. I want to challenge each of you to delve deeply into God's word and to develop your convictions from it. Then when you know them and love them because you know him and love him, pursue them with intensity. Friends, that is the kind of life that leads to a worthy life. Shall we pray?